The Pickleball Show is brought to you by PBX Club. PBX stands for Pickleball Excellence. Join today and get the latest pickleball tips and strategies, news, and opinion. Save money on paddles and other equipment with coupon codes to online pickleball retailers. Get travel discounts to tournaments and a whole lot more. How much does it cost to become a PBX Club member? Well, it's free. Just go to freepbxclub.com. That's freepbxclub.com. There's even a link in the show notes for this episode. FreePBXClub.com. PBX Pickleball Excellence. Join the club. It's free. This is Coach Mo from PickleballCoach.com. And here's the host of the Pickleball Show, Chris Allen. Thank you, Coach Mo, and welcome to the show dedicated to helping you play better pickleball while having even more fun and meeting new friends who share your passion. For this great sport. My name is Chris Allen. We're going to talk with our friend Mark Rennison in just a moment. He is uh, going to bust some myths today. That's one of our most popular episodes, episode number seven, Mark's original myth busting episode, and he's back with more. First, though, I wanted to address another topic. It's not exactly a myth, but I guess it is a topic open for debate, and that is the origin story. How did pickleball get its name? Now, a couple of episodes ago, when I was talking with Dave. David McNamara in New Zealand, he had mentioned uh, that it was named after the dog. It was on his website that he just set up for their new club down there. And I felt the need to correct him and say, oh, no, it wasn't actually the dog. The dog came years later, according to the uh, Pritchard's children. Uh, and the dog was actually named after the game. Uh, and I told him the rowing story that Mrs. Pritchard had observed uh, in, in rowing. A pickled crew comes from uh, the leftovers from different boats and that pickleball reminded her of you know different pieces of different sports and i thought the uh, the rowing story had been settled as yep that was the correct story now in a weird coincidence just the next day or the day after pickleball channel came out with a great video interviewing people that were actually in the room when the name was settled upon. They're doing a whole series this month to celebrate the 50th anniversary on the history of pickleball, and they'd have a video dedicated exclusively to how did pickleball get its name. Now, these people have very specific recollections that it was indeed named after Pickles the Dog, and we have linked to the video in the show notes here. So if this is something that interests you, definitely take a look at that video and let's see what you think. Now, like I said, I thought it had been settled a while ago, but obviously that is not the case. And who am I? I was not in the room, so uh, I certainly do not want to deny Pickles his due if the sport was named after him. Take a look at the video and uh, the debate, I guess, will continue. Now let's head up to Collingwood, Ontario, Canada, and our friend Mark Rennison from ThirdShotSports.com. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. You're joining us from Collingwood, Ontario, Canada, just a couple of hours north of Toronto, and you are coming off a spectacular performance in the 2015 Eastern Canadian Pickleball Championships. Congratulations on that. Oh, thanks. It was a great weekend. It was a really well-run tournament and uh it was a pretty good showing for my first competitive tournament i would say very very good there's a video up on youtube and we will link to this video in the show notes it's you you're playing singles against rob elliott yeah the legendary rob elliott from the villages and you you hang in there you hold your own all the way through that game so congrats kudos to you yeah thanks it was really fun um it's fun to play guys that caliber between him and brian staub and um, not only are they great competitors, they're really nice guys and very encouraging and 
it was a treat for me to play with them. Well, you pulled off a shot toward the very beginning of the game, and uh, it's at the two minute, 18 uh, second mark in the video. Uh, well, like I said, we'll link to it in the show notes. You've got to check out this shot. Uh, you hit this great angle drop shot into the kitchen. It hits the floor and it bites. It must have had some spin on it, too, because it bites on the floor and takes off. But Rob Elliott, being the player that he is, one of the best in the world, he chases it down. And then he does an amazing around the post shot that, you know, 99 times out of 100 is going to be a clear winner. But you take off and you dive and you hit the perfect shot. You you save that around the post shot, hit it perfectly over the net, and it just drops in the court. And everybody, including Rob Elliott, applauds you. Brian Staub is in the court next to yours, and uh, he was between points. So he's standing there and he's watching the whole thing, and he just puts his hands up like, wow, you know, that's just incredible. Definitely check that out. It's a two minute, 18 second mark. Just the the third point in the game. Boy, that was really a shot across the bow. I'm sure at the beginning of the game, Rob Elliott's thinking, oh boy, what have I gotten myself into here? Yeah, I. you know what? Um, when you play great players like that, they force you to come up with something special. And um, Rob was so quick to get to that short drop shot, but I knew he really only had one option, which was to hit it hard down the line. And so I managed to cover it and... Uh, you know, sometimes you get lucky. The players like that sort of force you to be creative and how you get the ball back in play. Yeah. I had a shot similar to that uh, last week. It was almost identical to what you did, except the part where you made the great, spectacular diving uh, you know, save and then you, you dinked it over the net for a winner. Instead of doing all that, I just tripped and fell over. But other other than that, though, it was almost identical to what you did. So. Yeah, yeah, you should put it up on YouTube, too. But we're going to do some myth-busting today. And uh, what's the first myth that we're going to bust today, Mark? I think the first thing we should talk about is whether or not you can train decision-making. This is uh, in terms of shot selection, right? Yeah, that's right. So a few weeks ago, you were speaking with Jeff Shank. It was a great conversation. I loved hearing the insights coming from him and the questions you were asking. And one of the things that came up was, I think you mentioned how you make really great shots in practice and then during the game, and you're not alone in this, by the way. During the game, the trouble comes of, well, when to make shot X versus shot Y. Yeah, well, I feel like, yeah, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with drilling because I feel like, well, you know, I'm practicing, you know, I'm making the, the shot correctly, but it's the wrong shot. So now I'm, I'm, hitting the, I'm hitting the worst shot that I could hit really well. You know, I'm, I'm yeah, feeding yeah. the ball to him really well. So, uh, so that's a myth that you feel like should be busted, that you can't teach shot selection. Yeah, so I think if we start with the premise that the pickleball is an open-skilled sport, right? No two shots are ever the same. The, the mm -hmm. ball you're receiving, the speed, spin, height, distance, direction, it's always different, right? Mm -hmm. Not only is that different, but you're in a different place on the court, your opponent's in a different place on the court, you're in a different position of the match, maybe you're outside and there's wind. So everything is always um, different compared to how it was previously. And that requires us as players to take a look at all those variables in a very sort of quick way and make decisions, right? Do I hit it um, down the line or do I hit cross score? Do I play a lob or do I play a drive? Uh, do I dink it and, and drop it in the kitchen or do I try to hit it hard at my opponent? So decision-making is actually like the foundation of pickleball, right? Hitting the ball is quite easy. What's hard is to sort of hit the ball in the right way at the right time. 
and that's where decision-making training comes in. So if we take, for example, a choice, let's imagine you've just hit a return of serve and you've come up to the kitchen, right? You're joining your partner at the kitchen. Okay. And uh, your opponents hit the ball back towards you. Now, if they hit that ball slightly above net level, you can respond to it very differently than if they hit it where you're now playing a volley below net level. Right? If the ball is above net level, you can now hit down on it. And if you can hit down, you can also hit fast. Mm -hmm. Whereas if the ball is below net level, you have to hit up. And if you hit up and fast, it goes out. So you have to play a very different shot, right? Typically, when it's below net level, you play a drop shot back. And so one way you could train that, for example, is you get a friend or you get someone that you like to train with and you get them to send you different kinds of balls. They can feed it right out of their hand, and the decision you have to make in this case is to drive it or to drop it. Okay, either drive it or drop it. Yeah, and so what's important is that, is that you establish some criteria, right? How are you gonna pick drive versus how are you gonna pick drop? The typical criteria in this case is the height of the ball, right? So you have to be very astute at identifying whether the ball you're receiving is above net level or below. Now, there's ways that you can um, train yourself to do this. It's important that you, like when I'm coaching students, uh, I get them to call out drive or drop because that, that gives me an indication, one, that they're focused on the criteria, mm -hmm. and two, it also gives me an idea of how quickly they're able to make their decision. Right? If they don't know that the, whether to drive or drop until they're hitting it, it's too late. Just like any other skill, just like hitting cross courts or just like hitting serves or just like hitting overheads, decision making can be trained. Now, it sounds like the first part of that is to categorize the shot. Like you said, either it's a drive or a drop. So give it a category first and then you can select from a smaller number of shots. Like if it's a, all right, I've selected either drive or drop, it's a drive. So now I can either drive to their forehand, I can drive to their backhand, but at least that reduces the number of shots that you have on your menu to select from. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So uh, I find it most helpful if you start with a situation, right? Mm -hmm. Once you've established that, right? So, okay, I'm at the net and someone's sending the ball to me. I now have to, as you say, like find out what are the options on the menu? <laughs> drive, drop, I don't know, maybe there's another one. And yeah, then, lob. <laughs> lob, right, you could lob it back. And then you can sort of systematically go through, well, okay, of those three options, how would you determine whether you're choosing option one or option two or option three? So it takes time. It's, you know, it's not just going out and hitting with your buddy. I mean, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But if we really want to improve, the practice that we do has to be deliberate, right? It's got to be focused. It's got to have a clear intention. And you have to have some idea about when you're doing it well and when you're not categorize the shot first and then once you've categorized the shot then you can select from that much smaller number of shots that you have in your arsenal so you're not thinking like which of the 21 shots should i hit you know as that ball's coming over if you categorize it into okay this is this type of shot all right that reduces it down to three choices instead of 21 choices now i just have three that could definitely work and i think that that will be a big help in choosing the correct shot and I think it's fun, right? I think people like to feel like they have some sort of control or that they, have, they can handle a situation. And 
you're right. If you're in a situation and you feel like you have unlimited options, that can actually be pretty incapacitating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like <laughs> right? when you go into an ice cream store and it's like, well, they have 31 different flavors. Gee, I don't know, you know, which one. I'm afraid I'm going to pick the wrong one, so I don't know what to get. But if you just have, you know, chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla, you're like, okay, I'm going to go vanilla. Exactly. So it's sort of doing the same thing, uh, but in pickleball. All right, cool. Well, I think we can consider that myth busted. There we go. We're ripping it up here. <laughs> All right. Now, what's the next myth that we're uh, we're going to tackle here? I think we should talk about the myth that you don't need to hit backhands when you play pickleball. Oh, yeah, I hear this all the time, and I see players, too, that will do anything. I mean, they will practically get in their car and drive to the next county to avoid hitting a backhand. Mm -hmm. I'll play a game. Sometimes it's like, well, how far over can I serve this ball to where they finally break down and use their backhand to return it to me? And some of them, I, I have to go, just keep going farther and farther and farther over to where I'm past the baseline. You know, the ball is bouncing, and it's not even getting to the baseline, and they're still trying to run around it just to hit their forehand yeah so it's actually i find it quite hilarious watching that as well here's the deal as you play with better and better players they're going to have more and more control over where they hit the ball they're going to be able to hit the ball um, faster and they're going to be able to hit the ball with more precision good players will identify very quickly if you're scared of hitting backhands right it doesn't it doesn't take long to see this Mm -hmm. and those good players will find a way eventually to force you to hit those backhands now in the case of, as you're describing, someone who who goes so far over that they're off the court, even if that person succeeds at doing what they want, which is avoiding their backhand and hitting a forehand, they're likely so far off the court and out of position. That they open up a giant hole, which is what I love, and then when they hit it back, you've got this big giant hole you can just go right down between. That's right. So I think the problem is too many people have bought into this myth, maybe this is the actual myth, too many people have bought into the myth that backhands are really hard to hit. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think that's true for a lot of people, mm-hmm. not because backhands are inherently tougher, but because they spend so little time practicing them that they feel really uncomfortable hitting them. Well, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because their backhand never gets good. And so, yeah, they I mean, they are terrible with their backhand because they never practice it. That's right. And so the main issues when it comes to backhands sometimes is people, um, they don't use a continental grip. They hold it with some other kind of grip so they feel like they're in a weaker position. Mm-hmm. Often, uh, they don't do a very good job of getting their body turned sideways. So they're relying just on their forearm to hit it. I actually made, um, I made a video about how you can make your backhand stronger. Yeah, I saw that one. That was good. Yeah, and I just think that if people took the time, again, it requires deliberate practice, if they took the time to really practice hitting backhands, they'd find very quickly that they're not actually that tough. Yeah, it's using a different side of your body that you're maybe not as accustomed to, but with a little bit of practice, you can hit them and you'll save yourself so much effort trying to avoid them. You'll have way better position in the court. Your opponents won't feel like they have an automatic weak spot to hit to. So all around, I would love if people stopped buying into the myth that backhands are really hard, you can play an entire match without hitting them. That might be true against very slow hitters, especially if you're quite mobile. But if you're not that quick or you're playing with people who can control the ball, you're going to have to play backhands one way or the other. And it's better to acknowledge that, spend some time, even if you're just hitting against a wall by yourself, right? You don't have to worry about holding up the game or other people not getting to play enough because you're missing your backhands. Just mm-hmm. find a just find a wall in a gym or find a wall on an outdoor court. And I bet you if you if you spend 
half an hour just hitting backhands, you'd be amazed at how much better they can be than, than you expect. And can you do a quick explanation? I know that a picture is worth a thousand words, so the video that you did, and we'll link to that video as well here in the show notes on uh, how to train hitting a proper backhand, but a real quick explanation about standing sideways. So very often when people receive the ball, they're facing forward to the net. And what happens, you imagine if the ball comes to your backhand side, you're really limited on the parts of body you can use when you're facing forward. Primarily, you can use your elbow and forearm and a little bit of your wrist. That's a very small segment of your body. And so it's hard to expect that using such a small, relatively weak segment that you can generate a lot of power. You can sometimes get away with that on the forehand because you're using the inside part of your arm, right? Mm -hmm. You're using your bicep, your chest, which is stronger. But when you're using the outside part, those muscles tend to be too weak. So it's really, really helpful as you see the ball coming to your backhand side that you turn, you prepare sideways. So your, let's say your opponent can see the back of your shoulder. And from that sideways position, it now becomes much easier to, to turn your body and to use your entire body to hit the ball, your hips, your shoulders, your core, as well as your arm. And it's so much easier to generate power when, now that you're using those stronger segments. A good quality backhand, one that's consistent, one that's strong, one that you can control, really requires that you use your whole body to hit it rather than just the small, relatively weak segments that sort of, at best, you can bump the ball over the net. So it's really um, setting up well, setting up in a sideways position. I mean, it's it's not actually very different from when you watch excellent tennis players hit one-handed backhands, right? They set up sideways mm-hmm. in, order, in order to rotate their body through the shot. So they're using the strong parts of their body to do the work. Now, ideally, would you want to hit forehands also sideways? Uh, ideally, yeah. Um, I mean, especially if you want to move forward afterwards, like let's say you're returning a serve. Mm-hmm. Um, when you set up sideways again, you can uh, you can rotate more easily. But then, like we said a minute ago, because you're using the internal muscles, right? Because you're using your bicep, because you're using um, your chest when you're hitting forehands, it becomes a little easier to generate power. So it's not as important. You can hit more of an open stance when you hit a forehand. But on the backhand, it's really pretty important that you fully get sideways so you can you can rotate through. I was reading a book uh, the other day, and it was about tennis, but so many things are applicable to pickleball. And the guy was saying, you never see a uh, major league baseball pitcher standing and facing the batter. You know, what's the first thing that a pitcher does? He gets sideways to pitch the ball. And that goes to your point. That's exactly what he's doing. He's getting his whole body into that motion so he can get as much force and power into throwing that ball as possible. Yeah, well, if you think about the similarities, so other sports like golf, for example, which uses many of the same mechanics as pickleball. So again, they set up sideways and then turn. Baseball batters do the same thing, right? They stand sideways in order to turn and rotate through to generate power. Mm -hmm. You're right, when they're throwing a ball, you imagine someone playing football, right? The quarterback prepares sideways in order to rotate through. That rotational power is very important. It makes sense that in other sports, even though they they're different in important ways. The body is the same. The body is the same, and the importance of rotating it mm-hmm. um, to get sort of effortless power still applies. Yeah, you hit or throw sideways, and then in that follow-through, you take that half step, and then and only then are you facing directly, you know, ready to receive the ball coming back. Yeah, that's right. Nice. Good explanation. All right, let's consider that myth busted. There we go. All right, we're two for three right now. What's the third myth here? And by the way, we're talking with Mark Renison from thirdshotsports.com. Mark is a tennis and pickleball coach from Collingwood, Ontario, Canada. Mark, what is myth number three? 
So myth number three is one of my favorite myths. I've been hearing a lot of complaints lately about bangers, about uh, people who who just hit the ball hard. So I think myth number three we should bust is that bangers are bad for the game. Bangers are bad for the game. Well, I mean, you, you do hear that all the time. Uh, you know what? I don't want to play there anymore. It's just a bunch of bangers over there. You know, they don't know how to play the soft game and there's just no, you know, they just want to stand back. They don't want to come up to the line. They just want to stand at the baseline and just zing it as hard as they can. You know, and that's the number one question it seems like that most coaches get is how do you beat a banger? And uh, the answer generally has been, well, just get good at being able to drop it on them because they hate coming up and they hate the soft game. So if you can drop it on them, you've got them beat. Yeah. So I'll tell you a quick story. It was sometime last year where a woman that I occasionally see playing pickleball, she came over and she was now going to be my opponent. And she said, oh, Mark, I'm so, I'm so glad that we're going to play together now. And I said, oh, why? And she said, oh, those guys, they don't play properly. All they do is bang the ball. And I said, oh, really? Well, how badly did you beat them? And she said, oh, no, we lost 15-4. <laughs> and so this was a good example, I think, where bangers bang, bangers hit hard, they take <laughs> away their opponent's time because it works. It's not a lower form of the game, it's not wrong, it's not less noble, it's a different kind of the game, and it works up to a certain point. So I think that the other coaches who have said before, how do you beat a banger? Well, what you need to do is you need to make your volleys good enough that banging doesn't work anymore. In this case of that particular story, this player, her volleys were not great. And so she had nice dinks and whatever, but she never got into dinking rallies because they would recognize that her volleys were weak and they could attack and they could just hit it harder. So the best way to change people's behavior is to show them that it's not working. So that means making your volleys great. It means making your overhead smashes awesome. And as soon as those bangers realize that, oh, this is ineffective, well, you'll either beat them if they keep doing the same strategy or they'll have to change. So I think that bangers are actually really, really important. I think we should actually praise bangers. We should be happy to have the bangers in our community around us that we play with because the banger is a real litmus test, right? <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about somebody having a uh, having a bumper sticker that says, have you hugged a banger today? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> you know, so... Nobody admits it, but they're out there. They're out there, and I think... Um, I go to my local YMCA where we play pickleball and someone is able to overpower me with their ground strokes, right? They just bang it at me. Mm -hmm. Rather than directing my anger, let's say, at this person for being a banger and not playing properly, really what I should do is I should use that as motivation to become a better volleyer. I should use that as an opportunity to, hey, I'm losing to this person who plays mm -hmm. this game style I don't like or whatever. Yeah. The onus should be on me to change, not on them. And once my volleys sort of get to the level where, where their banging doesn't work anymore, then I'm in great shape. Either I'm going to beat them because I'm better at volleying than they are at banging, or I'm going to force them to do something different that they don't like so much. It's the Gandhi quote. It's, be the change you wish to see in other people. Well, there you go. Yeah, exactly. And, and Gandhi, so, by the way, not many people know, was a heck of a pickleball player. Well, I hear he's got like a great third shot drop. Oh, you don't mess with him. No, you don't <laughs> mess with Gandhi. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. He'll drop it on you like like nobody's business, like a yeah. bad habit. That's the thing, too. I mean, that's it's a, it's a law of human nature that people only do what works for them, not just in pickleball, but in life. So if somebody is doing that constantly, if they're banging the ball over constantly, like you said, they're doing it because it works for them. They are winning, at least in their local league where they play, they're winning. They may not be going to tournaments. You know, they're not playing against Rob Elliott and Brian Staub and Phil Bagley like you just were. 
but in their local Y or wherever they are, it's working for them. So that's great advice. You know, if you want to shut them up, then uh, show them that it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work here anymore. They can't run that by you. And uh, they've got to advance to the next level if they want to play on your level. I think part of it is, um, in a lot of cases, there's a misunderstanding, right? So when they watch the 5-0 guys play, they don't see the banging, right? They see a consistent third shot drop. It's very easy, especially for a new player who's just sort of getting their feet wet in pickleball, is to look and say, oh, I guess that's how it's done. I guess that's the proper way to play, right? The same way that this woman said, oh, they're not playing properly. <laughs> well, the best players are doing it this way, therefore this might be the right way. And where the misunderstanding comes from is, is why they're doing it. They're not doing it because it's right. They're not doing it because it's in the rules. They're not doing it because it looks pretty. They're doing it because it's their only option. Well, it's not their only option. It's their only effective option. Because if they're a 5-0 player, they're playing against other 5-0 players. And 5-0 players, if you hit the ball at them so they can volley it, even if you hit it fast, they will punish you. They'll play it back as a drop shot. They'll put it away as an angle. They'll hit it back harder at you. So these guys play the third shot drop, not for some, not because it's somehow like a, a more special shot or a more proper shot. Uh -huh. If they want to get into the point, if they want to neutralize their opponent, it's their only hope. All right, then, bangers of the world, we salute you, and let's consider this myth busted. Here we go. Well, Mark, like we mentioned at the beginning, you're coming off of a great performance at the 2015 Eastern Canadian Pickleball Championships, and it did include playing against Rob Elliott, uh, Brian Staub, Phil Bagley. Like so many of us, you've watched videos of them playing, I'm sure, for years. But you, unlike many of us, you actually got a chance to stand across the net from them and play against them. Any, any takeaways or observations that you had? Well, as well as those being some of the nicest guys in pickleball, which, you know, they were all so encouraging. They invited me to come down to Arizona for nationals. And they were just really, really nice guys. But as players, we don't have many players like that up around here. And what really stood out to me was the consistency. You know, like, yeah, they once in a while hit sort of really great shots, and you do see those, of course. Mm -hmm. But the thing that really separates the level of players, the consistency, um, not just putting the ball in the, in the court, but putting it precisely where they want seemingly forever right mm -hmm. Be Begley was the one who stood out the the most you know he's a pretty pretty quiet sort of relaxed guy but you play him and you get the impression that that he could dink you for 24 hours straight and, <laughs> and um you know you, you can handle it for a little while and then you realize you know he's just sort of mentally wears you down mm -hmm. and um it's like, oh this is a cat and mouse game and guess who's the mouse <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it was great. It was great for me to to play with those guys. I know I left that tournament. I came back with a good understanding of things that I need to get better at to compete with them. You know, and instead of just being close to beating them, to actually get on top. So I'm looking forward to to training and working on those things, and uh, and looking for a couple of rematches. Well, we will look forward to seeing those. And thank you again for your time and uh, everything that you put into busting these myths today. I'm a subscriber to your, your email newsletter. You've got a website and everything. If people want to learn more and see more of your videos, where should they go? We're all over the web. So you can find us at thirdshotsports.com. You can find us on YouTube, Third Shot Sports. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Third Shot Sports, Twitter, Instagram. You can always send me an email. I love getting emails from people who listen to this show or people who 
see the videos, uh, mark at thirdshotsports.com. Sounds good. And like I said, we'll link to your website and to the singles match that you had with Rob Elliott. Uh, you got to check out that video, especially two minutes, 18 seconds in. You got to see that shot that Mark does. Probably the best shot I've ever seen. Well, Mark, keep compiling those myths. We want to hear from you again, and we uh, look forward to talking with you again. Sounds great. Can't wait. ThirdShotSports.com is where you can go to see more from Mark Renison. Hey, have you gotten your copy of the top 10 tips from Pickleball's three greatest coaches? Coach Mo, Deb Harrison, Prem Carnot, all together in one quick study guide that will definitely take your game to the next level. Go to freepbxclub.com, download your copy. Don't need a credit card. All you need is an email address. We'll send it right over to you. Freepbxclub.com. Also, head over to iTunes if you get a chance. Hit that subscribe button. You'll never miss an episode. Also, if you feel it's appropriate, please leave us a five-star review, which boosts us up in the rankings makes it a lot easier for other people around the world to find this show. Email us anytime, mail at pickleballshow.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Chris Allen. This is The Pickleball Show. And until next week, keep them low. The Pickleball Show is brought to you by PBX Club. PBX stands for Pickleball Excellence. Join today and get the latest pickleball tips and strategies, news, and opinion. Save money on paddles and other equipment with coupon codes to online pickleball retailers. Get travel discounts to tournaments and a whole lot more. How much does it cost to become a PBX Club member? Well, it's free. Just go to freepbxclub.com. That's freepbxclub.com. There's even a link in the show notes for this episode. FreePBXClub.com. PBX Pickleball Excellence. Join the club. It's free.